Hey guys, a while back I was running over in Schoolies Mountain Park. If you aren't from the area, Schoolies Mountain is a county park. It's got some paths, a lake in it. And it also has a decent sized little hill. I came to know about that hill when my kids were young because we, like most of Long Valley, we'd head over to Schoolies Mountain to go sledding down the hill. My kids loved sledding that hill. Me, I like about half of sledding that hill because I know what every parent knows when you take kids sledding. The ride down is a lot more fun than the walk back up, especially when you're dragging a sled full of kids back up the mountain. Well, some time went by, my kids got a little older as kids tend to do, and they came to me with a new brilliant idea, one that was even less fun than the half fun of sledding. Their new idea, hey dad, let's run reps of the hill over at Schoolies Mountain. And this time not for fun, but just for exercise. The first time I ran that hill with them, I remember thinking suddenly how much more I now liked and appreciated sledding. Well, over the years, running that hill at Schoolies Mountain, it's become a bit of a family thing. Every once in a while, when I feel like torturing myself, I'll head over to just see how many reps of the hill I can pound out. At this point at my age, when I go, I make sure to tell somebody to come looking for me if I'm not back in like an hour. Well, anyway, a couple of times ago when I was over there running the mountain, and by the way, I, I enjoy running the mountain best when there's only one other person around. I don't like it when there's a lot of people around because, just to be honest, it's hard to look particularly cool, fit, or athletic when you're doing this. But it's also good to have at least one person around in case of a cardiac event. Well, this day was that day. There was just one guy there, just a single man sitting alone in a parked car in a parked pickup truck in the parking lot. He was there when I first pulled in. He was there throughout my self-inflicted misery, and he was there when I got back in the car and pulled away to go home because I had indeed lived to run another day. And it was just at that very moment when I felt this very strong leading, I, I think it was by God, to go back and talk with the guy. Now, if you know me, you know this is not my thing. I mean, if I'm sitting in my truck by myself, the last thing I want is some other guy coming up to me. So I assume that most people would feel the same way. Plus, I mean, I had already left the parking lot. That would just be weird, right? I was trying to explain it to God, you know? I mean, maybe God, if I haven't, hadn't already left. See, see, God, that's a sign. If I was meant to talk with that guy, I wouldn't have left the parking lot already. Which is kind of funny because now I'm trying to explain to God his signs. So, and this doesn't happen all the time, since God was pretty adamant in my spirit that I needed to go back, I begrudgingly turned the car around, and I did. I went back into the parking lot, I kind of pulled up next to the guy, he gave me a strange look, I begrudgingly got out of the car, walked up to the guy's window, and explained exactly what had happened. I said, look, this is going to sound kind of crazy, I'm a follower of Jesus, in fact, I'm a pastor, and well, believe it or not, I, 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 as I was driving out, I just kind of felt when I was leaving, God wanted me to come back and, and check on you and make sure that you were okay. And we had a good conversation. Um, I told him that God must really care about him since he was so adamant with me to go back and, and check. And then I went on my way. I have to tell you, within a minute or so, I had this strange peace about doing what, you know, agreeing to do what God had asked me to do, actually following through on it, even though I didn't want to. And who knows, I don't know what seed was planted with that guy that day. See, sometimes God is direct, just like that. He, he, he directs us to people to whom he wants us to interact with. Other times, he's just God being God. 
One time I pulled into Grove Street Park to eat my lunch in the, in the park, and as I pulled up, I pulled up next to a guy from our church who was sitting in the car at Grove Street praying and asking God for some help and figuring something in his life out, and as soon as he got done praying, he opened his eyes and I pulled in next to him. We had a good laugh at that one together, and then we had a good talk. I have to tell you guys, based on 30 plus years of following Jesus, he is always, he's always active and moving in our lives. Sometimes in very clear ways where we can feel directed or, or maybe convicted. Other times he's leading more subtly or behind the scenes, working all things out for our good. Today, in this second part of our series, I Will, which is a response to a question because God, as you might remember from a series we did earlier this year, God asks a lot more questions than he ever answers. I'm asking you, I'm encouraging you to answer his question with a yes. Yes, uh, I will, to Christ's call to follow him and to be baptized. And I want to look at one of these God incidences that I just described for you in my life. I want to look at them in the life of two very different men. And before we get into their encounter, though, I want to give you a little background for the scene. Jesus, on, on two separate post-resurrection occasions, he's left his disciples with some pretty clear instructions as he readies to depart to be with his father. Instructions that we've come to know as the Great Commission. We first see them recorded by Matthew at the end of, at the end of his, his gospel. He writes that Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then he repeats himself. After being with them post-resurrection for 40 more days and teaching them more about the kingdom of God, Luke writes in the book of Acts, then they gathered around him and asked him, after all of this, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Which is kind of akin to, yeah, 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 we got all that great commission stuff, but enough about them, how about us? Is now the time you're going to restore Israel, or is now the time you're going to restore us to our days of glory and position and authority and might? And so, the mostly patient Jesus repeats himself. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and here it comes again, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So you hear it twice, right? Make disciples of who of all nations, be my witnesses where? Well, in Jerusalem. That one they liked, that was home. Judea and Samaria, well, that one was confusing and problematic because the people in Judea and Samaria had nothing in common. In fact, they hated each other. And Jesus says to the ends of the earth. So summing it all up, go to people unlike you and bring them the story and truth of me, make them students of mine, followers of mine, and then baptize them, publicly identify them with me. That was the marching order. Jesus said at the end of Acts, he said that at the end of Acts chapter 1, which is what makes what happens in the, in the early movement of the church, as recorded in chapters 2 through 8, so fascinating. Because there is one thing that disciples very clearly do not do, and you know what it is? It's go. They don't go anywhere. They stay. 
right there in Jerusalem, in the places with the people that they're comfortable with, in the culture that they're comfortable with, with the people that are like them. They heard go, their heart stayed. And in fact, for some time, it looked like the gospel wasn't going to be anything more than maybe a, a local tale, that it was never going to leave Jerusalem. It might even die there, let alone be good news for anybody but the Jews. That is until right there at home in Jerusalem, persecution begins against the early church. Luke, he records that on that day, the, the day Stephen became the first Christian martyred, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout, well, you guessed it, scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And man, there is a sermon just in that alone, right? Because we tend to think that persecution is punishment. But the truth is God will use conflict to convict. And so despite their desire to build God's kingdom in Jerusalem with the Jews, since they would not go, God allowed them to be kicked, right? They wouldn't go out. They got kicked out. Why? For God's pleasure and his purpose. And so the next time things don't seem to be going according to your plan, you might want to begin to wonder if they're actually going according to his. Well, what begins to happen is almost inconceivable. And it's relatively instantaneous. Because remember now, the Jews and the Samaritans, they hated each other. The Jews referred to them as dogs. They perceived them as half-breed Jews, mixed-race people who had abandoned the faith and begun not to just intermarry, but to worship false gods, which again is why what happens next, it's, it's, it makes it so stunning. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went, Luke writes. Specifically, Philip, he writes, went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there in Samaria. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said, so there was great joy in that city. I mean, in a stunning reversal of their understanding, it appears that God is not just interested in full Jews, but in a sense even in half Jews. He's, he's interested in half Jewish people. I mean, Philip, Philip must have been amazed at, 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 at their reception. He must have been perplexed about what God was showing him. And maybe he even wondered, but I wonder how far is too far. He was about to find out. Luke writes that, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go, there it is again, that word. This time he listens. Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all of the treasury of Candake, which means queen of the Opia, which means queen of Ethiopia. It's not, it's not a name, it's a title. She was the queen of Ethiopia. And, and this guy, he manages all of her finances. So an angel, think about this, tells him to go. This time he listens, and what does he see? Well, the truth is he sees something he, he would want to see even less than a Samaritan. This time he encounters somebody well, somebody that a white Jewish middle-class male would want nothing to do with. In fact, religiously would be prohibited from having anything to do with. What does he see? He sees, enter the story with me, he sees a sexually altered, likely black-skinned, African 
corporate type. One that in many ways had given up a lot to get ahead in his, his profession. What do I mean by that? Well, if you were here a few weeks ago, maybe you remember from Mike DeLuca's talk, um, he, he gave a talk on the blessing of being single. He brought up the term eunuch and said, if you don't know what a eunuch is, to go ask Pastor John. So I'm here today to tell you what a eunuch was. A eunuch in the first century, a eunuch was a, was a man who had been castrated, usually at a young age, oftentimes because they were children of slaves, and they were castrated for specific purposes, for the purpose of being a trusted servant in a royal household. A king, for example, would often castrate his servants to ensure they wouldn't be tempted to engage in sexual activity with any of the royal harem, and or to prevent their plotting of some kind of an overthrow. And they would want nothing to do with that because as a eunuch, they would have no heirs and that would eliminate them of thinking of creating a new royal line or dynasty of their own. And the reason Philip would have recoiled a bit is that as a good Jewish boy, he would have known that there was a prohibition in his religion about eunuchs from the book of Deuteronomy, which likely he had memorized. Quote, no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. Crushing or cutting? Can we share a corporate cringe or a holy ouch? In fact, it wasn't just Philip who would have understood the eunuch's outcast position. See, the eunuch himself would have required little reminding. Here's why, because Luke writes that this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he was on his way home. On his way home, he was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. Turns out that the eunuch was some kind of a God-fearing man who was familiar and had come to believe in the God of the Hebrews. In fact, he had gone to Jerusalem to worship that God. But my guess is that he had less than a favorable experience. My guess is that he's actually on his way home. He's on his way out of Jerusalem because he's been asked to leave Jerusalem. Because when he got there to worship God in the temple, he would have been told he's not welcome in the temple. All this is what makes what the Holy Spirit says next to Philip so striking. Luke writes that the Spirit told Philip, go, there is it again, go to that chariot and stay near it. What do chariots do? Chariots move. And so Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet, which is kind of funny, right? Enter the scene. It starts with that word go again. Not just go, this time run. And Philip runs up to the chariot. It doesn't say the chariot pulls over or stops. So my guess is that Philip runs up to the chariot and then runs with the chariot. Kind of running along, <coughs> alongside of it. Friends, is there a more beautiful visual of a God who literally chases outcasts down? And again, at one level, this guy's a big wig, right? Outcast from the Jewish faith, though he might be, he, he's in charge of the treasury of the queen of Ethiopia. So he has some position, some wealth, some authority. And, and obviously he's educated. How do I know that? Well, not only is he literate, he's reading the book of the prophet Isaiah in Hebrew. And do you know, this, this is so interesting, okay? Do you know what the prophet Isaiah had written regarding a future Messiah 
and eunuchs. I mean, this is too good. He's reading this book. Check this out. 700 plus years before this day, the scriptures, or Isaiah had prophesied, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people, and let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. I mean, can you imagine this eunuch, this man whose whole identity has wrapped up, been wrapped up, up until this moment in being the eunuch, the dry tree, if you know what I mean, and an identity which also included with it the stigma of exclusion. To him comes this promise from 700 years earlier uh, uh, from God about a Messiah who is going to change things, and not just change things, but change him and, and his identity and his name and his future. And so you've got to imagine Philip, observant guy that he is, he sees this man quite unexpectedly reading from his prophet. And so he says to him, well, do you understand what it is you're reading? Well, the eunuch responds, how can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. And so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and his lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? The Ethiopian eunuch becomes one of the first, but, but far from the last, and I hope you've asked this question, to engage in the great question about Jesus. Who is this man that can change me and my identity and my name and my future? Well, the scriptures say Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Well, what can stand in his way? Philip probably had a thousand different answers running through his mind. What could stand in his way of being baptized? How about his culture, his color, his career, his body, his past, his failures, his family, Heck, I mean, think about this, right? At that moment, Philip was probably even wrestling with Philip's own belief system. Philip could have answered, my faith might keep you from getting baptized, right? I mean, it would have been, in some respects, not just easy, but right for Philip to say, my religion, my beliefs, who, who, who I think can get baptized, the way I used to think, but maybe now I need to rethink, that might keep you from being baptized. I mean, heck, at this point, new Christians were still being told, right, if, if, if Gentiles that were coming to faith in Christ were being told that they needed to convert to Judaism first, and in order to do that, they needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. Imagine how that conversation would have gone with the eunuch. 
I mean, it's hard to mess with the goods when there aren't any goods. I mean, there were a thousand and one answers to that question. What could keep me from being baptized? This is what Luke records. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. Of course he went on his way rejoicing. He just got a new name, a new identity, a new future, a new inheritance. And I know, I'm sure he was so excited about this that he went and told everybody. You know why? Because today... Today, about 65% of people in Ethiopia are Christians. And those believers are native indigenous Christian Ethiopians whose church today traces their origins back to this eunuch and this moment. I have to tell you, if God can turn a eunuch into the father of faith for millions, if he can change that man's future, his identity, his inheritance, just imagine what he can, what he wants to do with yours. And so let me ask you that question, very, very just kind of blank. What is it that's standing in the way of you being baptized? I mean, tell me honestly, is it your culture? Is it, is it your color, your career, your body, your past, your pride, your failures, your family? I mean, do you know what you're being offered? I think Paul maybe explained it best. When Paul, remember Paul himself, Paul's the guy who started the persecutions of the Christians in Jerusalem that Philip was on the run from. Philip, when this story happens, is running from Paul. Paul later would meet the resurrected Jesus, and Jesus did what he always does to Paul. He changed his name from Saul to Paul. He changed his identity, right, from Pharisee to, to apostle. Changed his future, changed his inheritance. And it was Paul writing about baptism to the church in the city of Corinth. Here's what he wrote. He said, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, speaking of the Jewish ancestors, our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, here's what you need to know, right? baptism was not practiced, at least in the manner, mode, and purpose with which we do it in the days of Moses. So what is Paul talking about? He's using that, he's using it as a metaphor, he's painting a picture. What he's doing is he's tying the greatest event in the history of the people of Israel, the exodus from Egypt after 400 years in slavery, he's tying that moment to the baptism moment. This story, their story of their deliverance from this enslavement is at the heart of who they are as a people. In fact, a rabbi named Michael Goldberg says that the exodus was for Israel what the crucifixion is for Christians. It's the master story. It's the primary narrative of the people. And you know that story, most of you. After 400 plus years of brutal, horrific, barbaric, violent enslavement by the Egyptians, the scripture says that God hears the cries of his people and he sends these plagues into Egypt to convince Pharaoh to let them go. And after the 10th plague, he finally does. Well, 
the entire nation of Israel now rolls out of bondage and into the desert. But where are they going and how are they going to get there? Well, they say yes to the question of will you follow, right? They follow God's lead. How? Well, here's what we're told. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. And so you would think, heck, we all tend to think that if we follow God, then things will always just go our way. It'll always be rosy, right? That's what they were thinking, pulling out of Egypt that night. But a funny thing happened on the way to the promised land. The cloud by day and the fire by night led them right up to the shores of the Red Sea, which would have provided a good beach stop if it wasn't for the fact that Pharaoh had changed his mind and was now pursuing the people in order to exact his revenge. So, once confident Israel is now trapped between the sea and the sword, if you will, with no seeming way out, which is why at this moment they change their song. They say to their leader, Moses, was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. You see, this once bold, proud, confident people are now paralyzed by fear and wanting to go back to slavery. Well, Moses, full of faith, says to them, do not be afraid, stand firm. You will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And I'm sure you've seen it in the movies at God's command. Moses raised his hands and the Red Sea parted and the Israelites enter the waters. Israel, catch this now, this is why Paul is citing the story. Israel enters the waters, and as they do, it looks to them, well, it looks to them like certain death, right? Who could blame them? And in one way, in one sense, they were right. Because they were dying, but they were dying to their old stories. They were dying to their old names, their old identities, their old futures, and their old inheritances. You see, when they come out of the water on the other side of the sea, right, when the Egyptians are swallowed up into the waters, they emerge from the water with new lives, changed, a new story, a new reality. John Ortberg points out a lot of these changes, a lot of these new realities. He says, when they went in, they were slaves, and when they came out, they were free. When they went down into the water, they were in mortal danger. When they came out of the water, they were safe in the hands of God. When they went down in the water, they lived like every other ancient people. But when they came out of the water, God brings them to Mount Sinai to receive the commandments that would begin to have them live their lives differently than any other nation on earth. When they went into the water, they were terrified. When they went out of the water, the scriptures teach that they broke out in song and dance. You see, they had a new story, a new reality. When they went down into the water, they were victims. When they came out, they were victors. You see, when they went into the water, they didn't have a God story of their own. Sure, their fathers had them. They knew all about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But they didn't have a personal story of transformation in their own life. 
That day, at the baptism of Moses, they were a people that came out of the water with their own story about God, not just their moms and dads. Do you have your own God story? Because I'm telling you, he wants to change your name. You're no longer slaves to fear, but children of God. That's not something we just sing, you know? What's your story? How, how has he changed you? What were you at one point going into the waters? Maybe next week. What are you going into the waters? And what are you coming out? See, that's your story. And that's why all the things that come so easily as excuses vanish in light of this truth. Well, I mean, I, why do people tell me they can't get baptized? Well, you know, John, I don't think I've been good enough to get into the lake. Let me clean my life up a little bit first. No. That's why you go under the water. You die to that life. And you emerge with a new standing before God. You don't go in with that standing. See, he sees you buried with Christ and, and, and now sees you as you emerge from the waters covered in Christ's perfection. I don't know, maybe, maybe you thought you needed to know more, right? I don't know enough yet, John. I haven't, I haven't read the whole Bible. Excuse me, remind me, how much did the eunuch understand again? I mean, that might have been a long chariot ride, but it wasn't seminary. Well, I know some of you might say, I, I, I was baptized as a kid, so I don't want to hurt my mom or dad's feelings. And I have to tell you, I get that one. That resonates with me. That was my biggest internal check in my spirit before I got baptized. But here's the deal. Here's what I came to understand. My parents had me baptized in the hopes that God would one day save me. My decision to be baptized as a believer was external evidence to my mom and dad of an internal truth. God had done just as they hoped. This is how we move from our parents' God stories to our own. It's time for you to own your God story. What's getting buried in the lake next week? What's your future look like? Because for all who would say, yes, I will follow, there is a new name and a new future and a new inheritance that awaits for you. Friends, in summation, first, listen, if God tells you to go talk to someone, then by all means, and you should pray for this opportunity, by all means, go and talk to somebody. And it doesn't matter how different they are from you or how far you perceive them to be from God. You have no idea what God might be up to with you. And if you've come to believe that Jesus is who he said he is, that he is the way and the truth and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father except through him, and you have not been baptized, then next week is your appointed hour. I mean, who knows, right? If God can take a eunuch and make him the spiritual father of millions, imagine what awaits you in your new life on the other side of the sea. My friends, don't put it off another day. Today, as the scriptures say, today is the, is the day of salvation. It's time for you to go public. Let's bury some stuff in the lake together next week because your new life awaits, well, it awaits on the other side.